0: You know, I always think back to many of the trips I did around the globe doing volunteer surgery and kids with cleft lip and cleft palate and how the members of the team, they spent 10 days in a Central American country. It was hot. There was no air conditioning. They ate rice and beans. They had GI upset. They come back filled with energy. I think about a doctor that volunteered and we paid his way to go to Liberia to take care of patients with Ebola. He had to have IVs in his arm because he was sweating so much in the protective suits he would have otherwise passed out. He was the happiest human being I ever met when he came back. This purpose and mission, I think that we've given up. Some of it's been robbed from us by insurance companies, drug companies, hospital administrators. They have taken it. We've also ourselves been willing to give it up voluntarily. And I think in that process we've robbed ourselves of some joy and certainly a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction.
1: Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you.
2: I am honored today that the Ursini Way has partnered with The Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noel Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country. And I can tell you that I have seen personally how The Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again today. A few weeks before this recording... I started reading a book. To be honest, it was an audiobook, but I was driving from my home in Florida to my family home in New Jersey. I was listening to this book as I often do during long drives. And this book was very different from the very first chapter I was hooked. The book is called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. In my opinion, it's the best analysis and synopsis of the state of healthcare today that I have ever read. And to be honest, it really spoke to me. It confirmed all of my beliefs about medicine and what I've been teaching for over a decade, but much more eloquently. The book really said something to me. Today, I am honored to have the author of the book as my guest. Robert Pearl, MD, is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, a position which he held for more than 18 years. In this role, he led over 10,000 physicians and 38,000 staff and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care, 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West and East Coasts. Named one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders, Pearl is an advocate for the power of integrated, prepaid, technologically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. He serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses on strategy and leadership and lectures on information technology and healthcare policy. Dr. Pearl is the author of Mistreated Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, a Washington Post bestseller and offers a roadmap for transforming American healthcare. His new book, and the book we'll be discussing at Lent today, is called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, and is available now. All proceeds from this book are going to Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Pearl is also a fellow podcaster. He hosts the popular podcast Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. He publishes a newsletter with over 12,000 subscribers called Monthly Musings on American Healthcare. And is a regular contributor to forbes he's been featured on cbs this morning cnbc npr and in time usa today and bloomberg news and has published more than 100 articles in medical journals and contributed to numerous books he is a frequent keynote speaker at healthcare and medical technology conferences from 2012 to 2017 pearl served as chairman of the council of accountable physician practices and participated in the Bipartisan Congressional Task Force on Delivery System Reform and Health IT in Washington, D.C. Well, that's quite a mouthful. Robert, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, life is full and it's wonderful. And for your listeners, all profits for the book, go to Doctors Without Borders, as it did also for my first book, which is an amazing organization and charity providing care to victims around the globe. So I encourage people to look at that organization and hopefully buy the book and benefit Doctors Without Borders.
2: I know plenty of my colleagues that are involved in that. It's a wonderful organization. And uh, yes, I encourage everybody to get involved. So I'm very excited for you to be on this podcast and to talk about your book. I'm a big believer in building trust through communication and building rapport. So before we dive into the book, I just wanted to ask you if you might spend a few moments just telling my audience who Robert Pearl is, you know, where you grew up and how you became the CEO of Kaiser and then eventually wrote the book.
0: The word I would use is serendipity. I grew up on the East Coast and I wanted to be a university professor. And that was my plan when I started college. But my hero. A professor who ultimately became the chairman at Reed, so he was an excellent researcher and publisher, didn't get tenure because of his politics. And as strange as it might sound, I went into medicine to stay out of circumstances of politics. Because what could be less (laughs) political than saving a human life? So I went to medical school at Yale, and then I went out to Stanford actually to become a heart surgeon. And I became disillusioned again because I was seeing that people getting referrals were not the best surgeons. They were often the people who belonged to the right country clubs, had the right connections. And I almost left medicine at that point. But a professor in plastic surgery took me on a volunteer trip to Mexico. And I watched cleft lip and cleft palate being done, which is my specialty in plastic surgery. And I was moved. This ability to change a human life in a small amount of time. And then again, when I finished my training, I was going to South America and actually spent a year fixing children with cleft lip and cleft palate, and a plastic surgeon at Kaiser Permanente died in a tragic plane crash. And they said, would you come for a few months? I said, what can I lose for a few months? I'd never heard of Kaiser Permanente. Again, it's all serendipity. And then along the way, actually I was there for one year, And someone came to me, the head of the medical staff, and said, would you become the head of the operating room committee? I said, this must be a great honor. It's my tremendous credentials. No, everyone else was (laughs) smart enough to say no. This was a terrible job, (laughs) but I didn't know any better. So again, I moved in this area, and I enjoyed it. It was a little bit like the scientific method. You have a problem, a hypothesis, you test it, and you solve it. And I was able to make some advances at a time of major nurse shortage. And again, when the CEO role opened up, and then the medical group, this is in, in the Permanente Medical Group, the delivery half of Kaiser Permanente, the CEO was actually selected by the doctors. And it was not a job I really wanted. I loved being an operative surgeon. But the people who wanted the job were not the ones that I wanted. Kaiser Permanente was in trouble. It was out to two days of cash. I had to borrow their cash to stay in business, wow. and when no one else would step forward that I could support, I ended up stepping forward and getting chosen. So again, a series of changes. I was CEO for 18 years, and then when I wrote my first book, Mistreated. I we think we're getting good health care, we're usually wrong, became a Washington Post bestseller, and I had to make another decision between traveling and speaking about the book and keynoting various events or staying on, and it was the right time to move forward and So that's how I got here today. If I had tried to do it, I never could have accomplished it. But the path, in retrospect, makes total sense.
2: As is often the case, as they say, the universe pushes you in ways that you never even imagined. So went from a professor to head of Kaiser Permanente, and none of it was really, it just happened. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, along the way. So let's talk about the book, because the book is really, like I said, I, I wasn't just... Blowing wind up here, you know why the book really did speak to me. You talk about physician culture, and really, two topics that are really the hottest topics in medicine right now is the cost of healthcare and the rising costs and physician burnout. In many ways, they're related, as you mentioned in the book. But let's talk about physician culture, and in your book, you speak about it so well. How it's helped medicine and how it's hurt medicine. Maybe start off by just defining what physician culture is for the audience that's really not in medicine
0: culture is the values the beliefs and the norms that people follow for physicians we learn it in medical school and residency you don't find it in a textbook there's no professor lecturing on it it's the stories that are told the language that's used and to me it's very much like an invisible force like gravity you can't actually see gravity what you see is the impact of gravity has on objects as they fall towards the ground. The same thing happens in culture. We can figure out what the culture is when we look at the behaviors, some of which are very positive. And I don't want any of the listeners to think that this is a negative book. I love medicine. I love being a physician. This is really the story that comes out of love of a history going back thousands of years. But at the same time, I can't help but notice some of the challenges. And I think if we're going to advance it, particularly areas you just mentioned, we're going to have to improve the shortcomings and failures. And so I point those out as well in the book. So physician culture has held
2: us back many ways, and it's also advanced us. I'm going to butcher up this person's name, but tell us the story about Ignaz. How do you say his name? Ignaz Semmelweis.
0: Ignaz Semmelweis, yes. So he's a physician in Austria at the leading hospital, and he is appointed the head of the delivery service in some ways, like myself. It was just serendipity. And he takes the job and he looks at the situation that's happening. The mortality rate its
2: 18%. Wow.
0: Thinking at the time is that, well, at the time, the leading cause of death was puerperal fever, a roaring infection of the uterus that goes on to kill the recently delivered mother of the delivered child. <clears throat> and the cause is felt to be miasmas these particles drifting up through the smelly streets below. But then he looks around a little bit in the hospital that's adjacent, one where the delivery service isn't run by famous professors, but by nurse midwives. It has a mortality rate two-thirds lower. And once again, serendipity plays a role. A colleague nicks his finger while doing an autopsy in a woman who dies from puerperal fever And he goes on to develop not just a local infection, but a systemic disease that's identical to what these women are dying from. And someone hypothesizes, maybe there's something that's being carried from the autopsy room to the delivery room. And he tells the uh, obstetricians, you have to take off these leather aprons that wear at the time to cover their well-pressed three-piece suits. Put on a clean apron and dip their hands in chlorinated water. Lo and behold, within a month, mortality drops from eighteen percent under two percent. He writes this up. He writes to maternity service directors across Europe. And guess what happens? Nothing. No one changes behavior despite a ninety percent reduction in mortality. It doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't they? Adopt this behavior. And this is this invisible force, this culture. Why don't they? Because the doctor sees himself, they were all men at the time, as being a healer. The idea that they're transmitting disease would diminish the stature, diminish the esteem and the respect, not the death diminishing it, but just the fact that they were seen as the carriers and those leather aprons, it was signs of experience. The more blood, the more pus, the better it was. And it would be 50 more years till Louis Pasteur finds the theory of infection, that behavior changes. Tens of thousands of women die. And what I love about this story is now we are 150 years later, and what's the leading cause of death in hospitals? Hospital-acquired infection. What's the bacterium? C. difficile. What do we know about it? It's not like a coronavirus that goes through the air. It's carried on the hands of people. And what do we see in research studies at leading hospitals across the United States, done multiple times, one in three times when a physician goes from one patient's room to the next, they fail to wash their hands. With the alcohol-based disinfectants, it takes Fraction of a second, there's no cost. The reasons we normally think it's too much time, it costs too much, don't exist. It's still that culture. We see ourselves as healers. And when a patient dies from a hospital acquired infection, we assume it was someone else who carried that bacterium from one patient's room to the next.
2: It's an amazing story. And it took years before we even recognized that he was correct. And that's the sad part you know, when I do my workshops and I discuss how doctors are poor communicators and we're not really trained on how to do that, especially difficult conversations, someone I respect very much said to me once, you got to be really careful because you want to make sure that you understand that, you know, you might be insulting some doctors, right? When you say they're not good communicators. And so I'm, I'm very careful in explaining that, I don't teach compassion because I believe all doctors are compassionate people. I teach you how to convey that compassion, how to show it. Did it ever concern you when you were writing this book that someone was going to say, wow, what a jerk. He's really bad. I don't think you did because you were clear in the book, but was that something that you were aware of while you were writing it?
0: I knew it would happen. And I knew it would happen because, as you know from having read the book, near the end, I talk about the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. And I believe that we're in a time period now, the 21st century, when evolution is going to happen in healthcare because of external pressures, cost pressures being brought as our nation tries to recover from the economic devastation of the COVID-19 period we've just been through, changes in technology, changes in the power of the consumer. In every industry, it can't avoid healthcare. And I knew that doctors would go through these five stages, denial being the first one, where people would say, no, medicine was really fine in the past. There's no need to change, despite the data that says we're not only twice as expensive as any other country in the world, but our results lag the other eleven industrial nations in terms of life expectancy, childhood mortality, maternal mortality, and good, and the list of clinical outcome measures. Then I knew that anger would come next. It always does, and so I expected that people would say, "How could you pull back the veil?" In fact, actually, I didn't think they would say that. I thought they would attack me personally for things about me mm-hmm. that they didn't like—the fact that I was. The CEO of a company and assume, therefore, that I had gone to the dark side or whatever it was going to be, not recognizing that I was chosen by physicians, not by shareholders or administrative individuals or business leaders. Then I knew that they would bargain. And we're seeing that. I'm sure you saw the data, Tony, that said that now 70% of doctors work for either a hospital insurance company or private equity, and half of them are paid a salary by these organizations that doctors think they're going to be protected. They're not going to be. And depression, we both know that this is a major problem. 400 physician suicides a year. And my push was that we had to get to acceptance. And acceptance, as you well know, is not the same as liking it. It's an acceptance of what this new reality is You know, the doctor in the 20th century carried all of the knowledge. The patient had no choice but to come to the doctor to get that information because the only other place it was in the library. If you wanted to carry all medical information with you, you needed a 50-pound backpack. Now it's called a smartphone. You know, as doctors, we don't think the Internet has good medical advice. We think patients shouldn't go there they're going to go there. That's where they go for their information. And this notion of the patient is a consumer, we think that's terrible. These are patients, doctor-patient relationship, but that's not how the patient's going to say, this is a new evolving world. And the values that made the 20th century physician successful are not going to be the same ones as the 21st century. I mean, just think about it. How are we chosen for medical school? we were able to memorize a huge number of arcane facts that we could then use on the medical school entrance examination, the step one examination, every test along the way, we were able to memorize huge numbers of arcane facts. With a smartphone, it's not that relevant. What we have to (laughs) evolve is how do we use that information. But along the way, of that transition, yes, Tony, I was pretty confident that what would happen is people would become upset about that. And I would say that is the cost of being an author. And is part of the process of change.
2: Yeah, I run across that. Also, you know, it is hard to change. We've come a long way. I think one of the best things that's happened is the elevation of the patient experience and the HCAP scores. And you still see a lot of the more mature doctors really fighting that. You know, there's hospitals now that are posting publicly the doctor's patient satisfaction scores. And I know a lot of hospitals that have pulled back because there was such backlash from the doctors. I've always been a big advocate of showing your patient satisfaction scores, your HCAP scores to the public. The hospital should be doing that. And when doctors challenged me on that, I said, you know, you can't play baseball and not tell anybody your batting average. (laughs) You know, well, coach, what's my bat? I can't tell you. I don't want to tell you. You know, so I think it makes us more transparent, but you're right. It's all about the relationship now. We have so many really smart doctors who are excellent physicians and maybe don't have great practices or their patient satisfaction scores are low. And then on the other hand, as you know, there's there's some doctors who are great uh, communicators, lousy doctors or mediocre doctors who get great scores. But that's not a bad thing. It pushes you into a different relationship. It's all about trust, as Stephen Covey said in one of my podcasts. If the patient trusts you, they're not going to second guess you as much as possible. But this also forces us to be in a relationship. So I get that too. Now we're going to talk about physician burnout in a minute, and then we're going to talk about healthcare costs. But one of the things that helps me when I give my workshops is that I'm one of them, right? And so. There's a lot of people out there teaching doctors how to communicate and a lot of coaches that aren't doctors. And I think I get a little bit of a pass because I say I'm one of you. So let me tell you what works for me. You've walked the line and still do, administrator and physician. And there's a lot of tension in medicine right now between those two groups. How do you able to walk that line? Because if physicians think of you as administrator, administrators think of you as physician, or do you think it just really helped you in both areas?
0: I believe it helped in both areas. I continued to practice full time, even as I was taking on greater and greater responsibilities. In fact, even as the CEO, I'd actually work and go to the operating room during the Christmas holidays. The hard part of being a surgeon, of course, is you can't operate in the leave town because if something bad happens to a patient, it's problematic. And so I would take two weeks. I'd see a bunch of patients, I'd go to the operating room. I'd always have people with me who were doing it full-time, so no one should be afraid of what that might look like. But I had done the cases thousands of times. <laughs> and usually I was operating people who already knew me and people sometimes who were the children of the parents who I would operate on with the clefts originally, so the outcomes were good. And I did that to maintain a lot of the credibility. I also did it because I enjoyed doing that type of work. So people saw me as a clinician as well as an administrative leader, at least until the very, very end of my tenure as CEO. But for the people listening in who are not inside a physician-run organization, I mean, our entire board of directors were doctors, half of whom had no administrative titles. They were simply clinical physicians practicing. So that type of dialogue and -and back-and-forth communication is intrinsic in the organization And it's not like a CEO appointed by a board of directors of shareholders who has no direct clinical relationship with the people inside the uh, delivery system. People saw me as being different in that way, but it is a unique role in healthcare. And so I felt that I had that relationship with people, but I also was very careful, something I valued highly is that twice a year I'd go to every medical center, and there were 19 of them. So it was 38 days that I would spend meeting with individual physicians, hearing their thoughts, finding out their ideas. And as I, I'll say of course, I brag, that I stole all my best ideas. And I Everyone does by getting Everyone. them from the clinicians, providing the care. And my job was to find the best ones out there and then scale it. And to the extent that we were effective, and when I took over Kaiser Permanente, we were middle of the pack in quality. We became number one in the National Committee for Quality Assurance out of 1,000 programs. We were lagging around patient satisfaction, and J.D. Power & Associates, we became number one in California. So I feel really good about the things we accomplished, but they weren't my ideas. They were ones that I learned from the doctors that were in each of the medical centers, and they were ones then that we could quickly spread everywhere. And again, I want to uh, offer my gratitude to the physicians that I led for their willingness to take on new ways of providing care. And that's my hope in writing this book, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, because it is the culture, I think, that holds physicians back But also, as you said, very much so. It's the culture that allows us to be heroes that we can't give up. I mean, look at the coronavirus. You know, we went to the hospital 12 and 24 hours a day, particularly the doctors in the ED and the critical care units. You know, they didn't have protective gear. They had to don garbage bags and salad lids when there were no masks and protective gowns available. They knew that every time you're a critical care physician, every time you pass that tube through the mouth into the lung and it goes through the vocal cords, patients cough, spewing virus in their face and they did it anyway. This is a remarkable tradition and doctors are hardworking. They dedicate a decade of their life to training. You know, I can't say enough positive things But that doesn't offset the fact that some of these negative ones, maybe we'll talk about them in a second, do exist. And they're areas that we need to improve. Some of them have systemic, in fact, all of them have systemic causes. I think about it as those two snakes winding around the caduceus, around the staff and the caduceus, that symbol we wear on white coats and uh, book covers. The systematic issues and the cultural issues intimately entwined. You can't pull one snake apart without getting bit by the other. You've got to address both of them. And part of that process is acknowledging the shortcomings that exist and with things like chronic disease, things like racism, things like unnecessary procedures that raise costs without adding value. These are realities. Each of them have systemic causes, but all of them also have Cultural ones. Let's talk about, let's
2: go there then. So, what are the biggest problems with physician culture that are holding us back, you think?
0: So, one aspect is what do we value? That's what you asked me earlier. You know, we value intervention more than prevention. We elevate the interventional cardiologist above the primary care physician, but what does the data show? Add 10 primary care physicians to a community, and you improve longevity two and a half times more than adding Ten specialists, and yet that's not.
2: That was an amazing fact that I read in the book. That's phenomenal. That fact,
0: and the reasons are cultures about esteem and respect and position in the hierarchy. If you're an individual cardiologist, you go in the middle of the night and unblock a coronary artery. We know who saved the life. We know whose life was saved. If you're taking care of a panel of patients and you save ten lives through better prevention. No one knows that their life was saved because they don't know they would have died. This is the problem. So take hypertension. The number one cause of stroke, major contributor to heart disease and kidney failure. Across the United States, we control it 50 to 60% of the time. Now, some of that is systemic. Insurance companies don't pay enough for prevention, as an example. You know, doctors are too rushed to focus on the areas But in Kaiser Permanente, we were over 90%. We had a 40% lower stroke and heart attack rate than the rest of the nation because we had a higher value. A lot of that is the fact that we were paid on a capitated basis. This is the intersection of the system and the culture. So chronic disease is an issue, and I'm not blaming the doctors. I'm just pointing out that shortcoming that's there that we should be addressing. Another great example to me is the cost of care. The Mayo Clinic showed that 30% of what we do doesn't add any value, we still do it. You know, Tony, when I wrote this book or started to write the book, it was December of 2019, two months before coronavirus came as sure. And I read a report from the federal government that predicted that healthcare costs would rise five to six percent a year, every year for the next decade. I did the math, did the calculation of what that would mean on a cumulative basis. 2.5 trillion more dollars. 2.5 trillion. Could we not use that money for prevention, education, <laughs> technology? How could we use that money so many ways better than simply continuing the old healthcare system? And I looked around and I wanted to see a medical organization say, this is ridiculous, this is absurd, and no one did. That's the culture. We just accept the way we do things today is the right way. And I want to point out that the $2.5 trillion could be used in far better ways than we're using it today, particularly if we can augment it by eliminating some of these other aspects and racism. You know, what does the culture say? The culture says we treat every patient the same. The data says it's not true. Ask doctors why black patients have two to three times the mortality during COVID-19 as white patients, and they'll point to the systemic issues. They had jobs that they couldn't do from home, so they had to travel by bus and subway to work. They live in multi generational homes. Some of them have a higher rate of uninsurance. That in the white community, and all those systemic issues are true. There's nothing that's not accurate about that. But didn't explain why early in the pandemic, when a black patient and a white patient came to the ED with exactly the same symptoms, we tested the white patient twice as often. And when they had a procedure done, we gave 40% less pain medication. That is part of the culture. Now, it's not the racism that's part of the culture. Doctors are not intrinsically discriminatory. It's the fact we do it out of implicit bias, which comes out of our history. You know, 20,000 years ago, when a human form appeared on the horizon, we had to do a nanosecond to decide whether it was a tribe member to welcome or someone from another tribe that we better shoot with an arrow before they shoot us. That tribalism still persists in our subconscious, allows us to recognize people who look like us, have the same skin color, speak the same language, worship the same God, whatever point we want to be, but it leads us to treat people who are different, others less well, with less empathy than we do people who are like ourselves. Racism is non-implicit bias, but knowing that it exists and not acting on it, that is racism. And that is embedded, I believe, in the practice of medicine. These are the kinds of things that are just not right. People dying unnecessarily from chronic disease. People going bankrupt because they can't afford the health care. People who are treated differently, not as well because of the color of their skin. Doctors are not to blame, but we're also not to be fully excused. The system needs to change, but so does the culture.
2: So I'm working on a piece right now. I've been working on it for a while called The Second Second. And it, it speaks exactly to what you just said, that this is tribalism. And it's a nanosecond, but let's for argument, say it the first second. That first second is going to happen. It's in your DNA, but it's what we do with the second that makes all the difference. And we have to recognize that and work towards that. One of the ways that I truly believe we can fix things and make preventative care better it's well known that if you have a relationship with your doctor, if you trust your doctor, even if you met a doctor for the first time and you trust that doctor, you've bonded, you've built rapport, you're more likely to take your medication. You're more likely to follow up and follow the treatment plan. And yes, studies have shown, as you know, that they have better outcomes. So if we can teach physicians and practitioners and providers how to really build that rapport, even if it's in an emergency room. How do you walk in? How do you sit down? How do you introduce yourself? We did an informal study, Robert, many years ago. We asked mothers, I think it was 50 moms. And I said, what makes you more comfortable? A doctor introduces himself as one of the pediatricians or a doctor introduces himself as the intern responsible for your baby. And 40% of them said they chose the intern. And I said, do you know an intern doesn't know anything? And he said, Yes, but that intern is taking responsibility for my baby. The other doctor is saying, Hey, I'm just one of the pediatricians. So if something goes wrong, don't blame me. I'm just a small cog in a big wheel. And so it's all about building relationships. And sometimes we could use that tribalism to our advantage. For instance, we know that African American patients are more comfortable going to African American doctors and Hispanic patients. Would much rather who, who have trouble with English language would much rather go to a doctor who speaks Spanish. That's fine. We can use that to ourselves. You know, I really preach that rapport a lot. I'll go call a mother from the NICU and I'll see a nine seven three area code because everybody keeps their cell phones now, and I'll say that's nine seven three. That's New Jersey, right? Mom lights up. Oh, you're one of me. You're from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. So it's all about building that relationships, and that's why I think. We have to do a better job in teaching our doctors and nurses how to bring that personal touch, as you saw in my TED Talk, how to bring that uh, back. And I think it makes it better for us because I think we'll enjoy that, enjoy medicine even more again. And that leads me into professional burnout and what your thoughts on what we can do about. You mentioned doctors with higher uh, suicide rates, professional burnout, people leaving. What are your thoughts on that and how can we make that better other than what I had said of just getting doctors to enjoy their their work even more?
0: So before we get to burnout, let me get one comment. First of all, I loved your TED Talk. I thought the story about that physician explaining something at the time of death was uh, so moving and so uh, indicative of the challenges of culture. And he obviously knew it because he told you afterwards he had blown it, but he's still did it that way because that's how he Uh had been trained in his residency and most likely he trained a lot of other people that way until he figured out it was the wrong way to go. And I can't emphasize enough what you're saying, this ability to build trust with patients. You know, in marketing, there's a notion, don't tell people about features, tell them about the benefits, establish that relationship. You know, one of the things I used to do that would be remarkable to people is I would always give my home phone to patients who I operated on. I mean, after I operated 10,000 people. 10,000 people could be calling me home every night. Three called in the entire time. And two out of those three had problems that I wanted to immediately know about. I had one call in all these years that was up. Because patients respect doctors and their time. They're not going to take advantage of them. But for the patient to know, I have the doctor's home phone. Imagine how much better they slept that day night. And I love what you said earlier about the fact that what you teach people is not how to convince people. It's how to express the trust and the caring that's inside themselves that we hide because we learn in medicine, hide your emotions, never let yourself become exposed Is exactly the opposite of what needs to happen. And that leads to the issue you're raising about burnout. So if you ask doctors about what causes burnout, they will give you three reasons. It's very consistent. It's been done in a lot of studies. Number one, I don't get paid enough, which means I see too many patients. Number two, I have too many bureaucratic tasks, particularly around getting approval for the things that I do. And number three, there's this computer that gets between me and my patients, so literally between me and my patients. All those parts disrupt the time and the experience with patients, and they're all right. Every one of them needs to improve but they don't fully explain the problem. And that's what I think we need to understand because in this pernicious part of the physician culture, status, the hierarchy is very important. And if you look inside the data on burnout, you start to see some inexplicable differences. So if we look in the pre-COVID period, the specialty that was the most burned out was urology. Now, urologists earn almost a half million dollars a year. They earn double what pediatricians earn, and yet they're 10 points more burned out. That can't be simply the money and the number of patients being seen per day. And if you compare urology that's one of the most burned out against orthopedics or ophthalmology, two of the least burned out specialties. These other surgical specialties have to get the same authorization, go through the same bureaucratic tests, use the same computer systems, So how do we explain a 25-point difference? And the answer is, it's this hierarchy, the hierarchy that we spoke about earlier that puts the interventional cardiologist at the top and primary care at the bottom. When it comes to urology in 2010, urologists were not very burned out. They were pretty happy. And then what happens? The U.S. Task Force on Preventive Services stops recommending the PSA. So the number of men diagnosed with cancer who need prostatectomy start to decline. And then we learn that watchful waiting is often as good as intervention without the risk of impotence and urinary incontinence. And then centers of excellence start to happen. So more and more urologists stop doing this operation. And why is that significant? Because the prostatectomy that's been done in the last decade is a robotic prostatectomy, a Star Wars-like procedure that elevated status. And now, if you're not doing the Star Wars operation, even though you're making just as much money, your position in the hierarchy starts to drop. And Mr. Michael Marmot, who's a sociologist from England, has pointed out the relationship that status is important as money. Low status negatively impacts mental health and physical health. And people have found that a dropping status is the worst in terms of your well-being. You become unfulfilled, dissatisfied, and fatigued. These are the triad of symptoms of burnout. So this is, I think, a major issue on top of the problems that exist relative to systemic issues in medicine. And I think the second part that's happening in medicine in general and why 44% of doctors are burned out, you know, I'm talking about 10 or 20%, we're talking about almost half is what's happened to medicine overall. And in the 20th century, as you mentioned earlier, the doctor had all the knowledge, it was a very paternalistic type world, and very much a vertical hierarchy that's gotten flattened as patients go to the internet and bring information into play. They don't see the doctor as the ultimate authority anymore. They see it as an advisor, and they will make the final decision. We see physicians now accountable for what patients do, and they don't see that as being a major part of their job. Their job was to offer expertise, and now they're having to evolve into helping patients get better, very uncomfortable, These factors, I don't know if they are 20% or 40% or 60% of the problem, but if we don't address those along with the systemic, we're not going to improve burnout. And I believe, and this is where I think some of your listeners may disagree, but I believe we're not going to be able to address either the problems with patient outcomes or the physician culture, unless we can evolve for a fee-for-service world that simply rewards volume and complexity to one that is prepaid, capitated, whatever word you'd like to have, but now all of a sudden in a capitated world at the delivery system level, not the insurance, delivery system, prevention becomes more important, avoidance of complications for chronic disease, patient safety, You stop doing the 30% of things that don't add any value. You start offering telemedicine not as simply an inferior means of an office procedure, but an opportunity to make a diagnosis earlier, provide higher quality and more convenient ways. You start engaging with patients differently. And I think in that process, not only will we improve clinical outcomes, but we will elevate position satisfaction. You know, I always think back to many of the trips I did around the globe doing volunteer surgery and kids with cleft lip and cleft palate and how the members of the team, they spent 10 days in a Central American country. It was hot. There was no air conditioning. They ate rice and beans. They had GI upset. They come back filled with energy. I think about a doctor that volunteered and we paid his way to go to Liberia to take care of patients with Ebola. He had to have IVs in his arm because he was sweating so much in the protective suits he would have otherwise passed out. He was the happiest human being I ever met when he came back. This purpose and mission, I think that we've given up. Some of it has been robbed from us by insurance companies, drug companies, hospital administrators. They have taken it we've also ourselves been willing to give it up voluntarily. And I think in that process, we've robbed ourselves of some joy and certainly a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction. So I
2: couldn't agree with you more. And you're right. All these aspects are really putting a lot of pressure on physicians. What I try to talk to physicians about when I give my communication workshops is Yes, you have the electronic medical records. You have the hospital administrators. You have all the extra things that you have to do. I mean, every day it seems like you're proving that you've got to get CMEs and you've got to take this and you. But here's the thing when you go into the treatment room and you meet a patient or you go into the hospital room, no one else is there. It's you and the human being on the other side of the table. And That's where you're in total control as a doctor. And you could make those, the next five or 10 minutes, a meaningful interaction between two human beings. And when you have a connection between two human beings, whether it's at a party or it's in a treatment room. Now, of course, if it's an emergency or someone's dying, there's difference. But either way, all that stuff that's out there goes away. Those are your 10 minutes to be the doctor that you wanted to be when you first started. And no one can take that away from you. So I try to get doctors to remember, yep, I feel the same way I'm experiencing it right now with my job. But when I'm speaking to a mom about a baby, nobody else is there. There's nobody telling me about CME credits or electronic medical records, and I can go do my EMR later on. This is my time. And when I leave the 10 minute interaction, part of my book, I sent it to you is, you know, it says it's hard to fire your best friend. When I leave that interaction for 10 minutes, I feel like I had a best friend and you will go home happier and remind yourself why you went into medicine in the first place. And I think that's where we have to start. So just my little plug on that, but I really truly believe that. So we're getting down to the end here. I have 10 more questions, but we're not going to be able to get to those. So I'll finish with the question that I always finish with, since this is about difficult conversations and we've had some, your whole book is a difficult conversation, basically, with doctors and healthcare providers. What do you think is the most difficult conversation that you've had in your life? And it could be a type of conversation if you don't want to get personal. Give us some advice on how you navigated through
0: that. The most difficult conversations I've had I've had to be with families of patients who have died, that I was part of the death process. In the book, I talk about a young girl named Kathy, who I consulted on for a necrotizing fasciitis, a severe infection of her arm, and had to make a difficult decision around opening it up and being able to take out the dead tissue that was there. And ultimately, her demise. And I had to tell her parents, this is their only daughter. They weren't going to have any more family. This was their pride, their joy. She was a great student. She was an athlete. She played soccer. You couldn't have better, more adoring parents than Kathy. And now her daughter, after a battle with leukemia and a surgical procedure, was dead. And I had to... I'll say tuck in my own emotions because I had to, in that moment, support them. I had seen the impact of death on my cousin's, Alan's death on my aunt and uncle, that I also talk about in the book. And I knew what the family would be going through. Uh, And I think that was one of the most difficult conversations to be able to tell them the truth, that their daughter was now dead, that we had done what we could do, but that I was sorry for their loss. And I had to have that conversation in a way that I could help them, if only a small amount, to be able to go to sleep that night. And then I had to twist and turn, stay up most of the night. And the next morning I had to get up again because there was another child, another family, this one with a cleft lip, who needed my skill to repair it. If I was still thinking about Kathy and her parents, I couldn't do my best. With this next child and the rest of her life, and I think in that moment, I don't know that the conversation was the sole point that I was saying was so hard, but the tremendous emotion going by and the sense that almost no matter what I did, I couldn't make it right, and that as a physician is probably one of the most difficult things that we have to accept about the profession we've chosen is the price we pay for our patients. And I think in the end, it gives us the purpose and the meaning and the mission of the wonderful choice of becoming a doctor and participating in the practice of helping people get healthier.
2: Well said. As you know, my life's work is about teaching doctors, specifically in the beginning was to teach them how to break bad news in the kindest manner. There is a right way and a wrong way of doing that. And as I, it's been often said, that if you do it correctly the healing can start with the news. And if you do it incorrectly, you're gonna really mess that up. And so it's important to navigate. I agree, that's the most difficult conversation to have with the family. So thank you for that. Robert, this has been great. Again, I'm trying to keep this less than an hour because I have about 10 more questions, but maybe we'll have you back on. But it's been a real pleasure and an honor to get to know you. The book is called Uncaring. Robert, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
0: The best place to go is my website, robertperlmd.com. There they can learn more about the book. They can sign up for my monthly musings that comes out the second Tuesday of every month that has a lot more information on all these different aspects, both of the system of medicine and the culture of medicine. Engage with your friends. Think about the topics that are there. Let me know your ideas. I have my thoughts, but I recognize they're certainly incomplete at this point as we try to make American medicine, once again, the best in the world. Thank you, Anthony, for
2: having me today. Fantastic. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit follow on your favorite podcast episode. If you want to get in touch with me or find more about the Orsini Way and the programs that we offer, you can reach me at OrsiniWay.com. Thank you again, and thanks everyone for listening. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finlay Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally save the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you. And I will see you again on Tuesday.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at the Orsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.